Thank you for joining us and listening to this message from the Ministry of Grace Providence Church in Cerritos, California. For more information, visit our website at www.graceprovidencechurch.org. So William mentioned uh, this passage that we're coming to, how important it is, how difficult it is, and uh, I'm excited to be able to teach it. It's the great prophecy of Daniel known as the 70 weeks of Daniel. So we're just going to introduce it this morning in the passage that's before us. So let's begin reading at verse 20 through 24. While I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision." Now, just verse 24. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. So this is the great passage of Daniel's 70 weeks. Uh, It's difficult, it's complex. It might seem confusing. So it's been the subject of much study throughout the centuries. There's different interpretations as to the meaning of Daniel's 70 weeks, particularly when it begins. So we're going to slow down here uh, at a turtle's pace. So this will be one sermon, what we see today, but verse 25 will be a sermon, verse 26 a sermon, and verse 27 a sermon. So we're really slowing down. I haven't gone this slow through Daniel yet. We've covered, in fact, whole chapters before. We were looking at Daniel and the lion's den and so on. But this is important. I want us to be able to appreciate what's here. It is, an, it is an amazing prophecy. It's actually a time prophecy. And that's what's unique about it, because there's not another time prophecy in the Bible. That is, it's going to tell us when something's going to happen. God knows his plan. He knows it in detail. He can tell us when something's going to occur, as well as what is going to occur. So, Let's review just for a second. Last week, we looked at Daniel's prayer, which was verses 1 to 19. 
It was a prayer of confession. Now, he was stirred up to prayer because he read in the prophet Jeremiah that their captivity in Babylon was going to last 70 years. And that time is approaching, the end of it. So Daniel's an old man. He's in his 80s. And this stirs him up to pray that God will fulfill his word, that What's going to happen? The people will be released. The people will be sent back to their homeland, back to Judah. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar carried away. He destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. He destroyed the city of Jerusalem. And there weren't many people left in the land. They were scattered all over, but many of them in Babylon. And then that transitioned into the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians the kingdom of Babylon, as it was taken over by Cyrus the Great. So they're going to go back to their land, rebuild the city, rebuild the temple, and all of that. And Daniel wants that to happen, and he's arguing with God about it. Remember his plea? So his first, the major portion of that prayer had to do with confessing the sin. And it's all about, we have sinned. Daniel included himself. He doesn't say, my people only. But we, this godly man, Daniel, faithful servant of the Lord, included himself in sinning against God. But then he, toward the last section of the prayer, had to do with his pleas for mercy. And we made a distinction there in the the way I opened this up. That's a whole other section at the end where he is appealing to God's mercy and he has arguments that he presents to God why he should answer that prayer. Remember the arguments? It all came down to God's reputation, how people see Yahweh in the world, how his people see him, as well as the surrounding neighboring heathen nations. God is zealous for his name. He's zealous about his reputation. For your name's sake, this is your sanctuary, this is your holy hill, we are your people, and Daniel is arguing like that. So this, this was a mighty prayer of Daniel. It gives us an insight into how, what a wonderful man of prayer Daniel was. So while he's speaking, the answer comes. He's not even done with prayer. So that's the first thing I want you to note here in verses 20 to 23, that Gabriel comes in response to Daniel's prayer. Notice how it begins. Verse 20, while I was speaking, that is, he's still praying. In fact, he's going to repeat that in verse 21, while I was speaking. Now, that's an amazing thing that God sent an answer. Why Dan- Daniel isn't even done with his prayer yet. You know, there's a text in Isaiah 65, verse 24, Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. That's a, that's a perfect cross-reference to right here. Isaiah 65, 24. Because this is what happened. God sent Gabriel with a, a word, with a revelation in response to Daniel's prayer. Now notice he's called the man Gabriel. 
Do you know that? This is the angel. But he's called the man. Back in chapter 8 and verse 15, Daniel said that there appeared before me one having the appearance of a man. This turned out to be Gabriel. So when an angel materializes or an angel shows up, they can often appear as a human being, but it's always a male human being. So he appeared as a man, and he's come on a mission. Notice he came in swift flight. Did you catch that? He has wings. Now, do all angels have wings? Are you generally portrayed as having wings? We don't know that they all do. But we do know the seraphim from Isaiah 6 have wings. In fact, they have six wings. Six, the seraphim, who do nothing else but are around the throne of God, worshiping God for his holiness. With two, they covered their eyes. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they flew, is how Isaiah described it. And then the cherubim in Ezekiel chapter 1 They have four wings, and wings are mentioned 12 times in Ezekiel 1 concerning the cherubim. There's an emphasis. And when they stood, I like the verse, it says, when they stood, they let down their wings. Something awesome about that before God. In the book of Revelation, chapter 14, there's the angel who flew having the everlasting gospel and announcing it to the earth. But those are the only places that I found in the Bible about angels having wings. So cherubim, seraphim do, and the angel in Revelation 14. Now notice when he came with the answer. He came at the time of the evening sacrifice. Remember there were two sacrifices that were made every day in the temple? The morning sacrifice and the evening sacrifice. A continual burnt offering was to be done every day in Israel as a reminder of God's presence among his people, the need to maintain holiness, and so on. The evening sacrifice would have been around 3 or 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Now he says, I've come to make you understand. He's going to make him understand God's plan. He's going to give him insight into the plan of God. This is what's going to open up to Daniel. A revelation of what is coming in the future. And he's come to give this to Daniel. And now notice, Gabriel says that he came at the beginning of your pleas for mercy. The plea for mercy began in verse 15 of the chapter. That's when I mentioned the prayer shifted from a confession of sin to pleading for God's mercy with arguments, appeals made by arguments before God. So it was when God heard that argument about his reputation, he dispatched Gabriel to Daniel with this answer. Word went out from God. At the beginning of your plea for mercy, a word went out. That is the word of revelation. This is the answer God gave. And he says, I have come 
to tell it to you. Where did Gabriel come from? He came from the presence of God. Remember when he came to Zacharias in Luke chapter 1? It says, he stood before the presence of God. I'm the one who stands before the presence of God. Luke 1.19. This is Gabriel. Notice why Daniel is favored with this amazing revelation. For you are greatly loved. This man had God's favor. And God does favor his people with revelation. The Lord Jesus Christ said to his disciples in the upper room, in the upper room discourse on the eve of his crucifixion, he says, you're my friends. You're not, you're not servants anymore. You're my friends. And how did he demonstrate his love for them? All that the Father, all that I have heard from the Father, I have made known to you. They were favored with God's word, God's revelation, insight into what is true about Jesus Christ, the gospel, and all that he unfolded to them in the upper room. In fact, his entire three years of ministry. So he says, consider, therefore, the word and understand the vision. So he's talking about the revelation again. It came primarily in as a word. It was something that he was to hear. Vision would have to do with what is seen. That no doubt pertained to Gabriel himself. Now, secondly, notice just the first part of verse 24. I'm going to break verse 24 in half. For my second point, the revelation of 70 weeks. I just want to look at that for a moment. 70 weeks are are decreed about your people and your holy city. So we'll stop right there for a moment. So the 70 weeks, this is where it comes from. The word weeks, in the original Hebrew word, is the word for seven. But it also refers to a unit of time. Namely, seven days, a week. That's how we usually think of it. So it's sometimes, the uh, Bible scholars say, the, the Daniel's prophecy of the 77s. That's correct to say that. Because it's the word for the number seven. But it also means a unit of time of seven of something. And, of course, we think of seven days. So what are we to do with that number? Well, you're to multiply it. It's 70 sevens. What is that? That's 490. Now, it can't be days because of what happens in that length of time. The magnitude of the results or the accomplishments of what happens in this 490-day or otherwise period of time, it has to go beyond 490 days. That's only about a year and a half. And so everybody, most Bible scholars, conservatives, see the week referring to years. It's a week of years. 
So that's how I understand it. I think most people would agree with that. You will see that it fits the time frame beautifully if it's years of what occurs. So we rule out days. It can't be 490 days. So it's 77s, and years makes the most sense. So assuming that, we've got 490 years are decreed. Now that means determined. And of course, we know, we understand from our theology that this is God's decree. It's not man's decree. It's what God has purposed to do, and it's set forth as a decree, meaning it's he determined it, it's fixed, it can't be changed. You know, in our confessions of faith, of the Reformed persuasion, we have those great statements about God's eternal decree. It's important to grasp that because that is an underlying truth in the Bible, that God has an eternal purpose. And what unfolds in time, in history, is what was decreed by God. So here we have this insight that God has determined these 490 years that pertain. Notice who this decree pertains to. It it pertains to who Daniel prayed for. It pertains to his people, so it pertains primarily to Israel and to Jerusalem. Your holy city, your people, and your holy city. So Daniel been praying, Lord, we're your people. This is your holy city, your holy hill. It's time to go back. Lord, bring about the fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy. This is the revelation of the 70 weeks. Now, in the rest of verse 24, and I separated this out and making a third point from it. What is listed here, these There are six things that are listed here. These are the things that are to be accomplished within this 490-year period. Let's look at them one by one. First of all, to finish the transgression. Now, there's a lot of discussion about that because that's a hard one to figure out. In what sense to finish the transgression? Well, I actually prefer another rendering of this, which several great Hebrew scholars say there's another way to render this because the word means also to restrain, to withhold, to hold back. And so in the New American Standard Bible, you'll have the word restrain in the margin for this verse. Also, the NIV has in their margin restrain. This is the view of Calvin. It's the view of a German theologian that wrote on this subject by the name of Ernest Hingstenberg, as well as Edward J. Young. Some examples of that, for example, is used in Genesis 8-2, this same uh, verb, that the rain from the heavens was restrained when the ending of the Genesis flood 
was set forth. God held back the rain. Uh, David was said to be withheld from committing murder by Abigail in 1 Samuel. So there, there are several examples of the idea of restraint that this word is used. So I can, for myself, I can understand better the idea of the restraining of transgression than finishing. I can't figure out what it means to finish the transgression. But restraining, I can. When I understand that this is a, I'll just tell you now, this is a result of the death of Christ. So these things that are mentioned, this is what's going to be affected by the anointed one, the prince that comes in verse 25. He's the one that's going to accomplish this. This is the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The restraining sin. That's definitely an effect of the cross. It's effect on us. We as his people, we are restrained from sin because of Jesus Christ. We want to please him. That keeps me from doing a lot of evil things that my nature otherwise would be inclined to do. So that's the first thing. What he's going to tell us here is he's going to deal thoroughly with sin, with the problem of sin. Because that was the major problem in Daniel's prayer, was the sin of his people and all the various words. Remember, Daniel used five different Hebrew words to describe Israel's sin and his own sin. Transgression, sin, uh, iniquity. There were five words. Three of them he uses here. So this is the first thing to finish the transgression or to restrain the transgression. Now, secondly, to put an end to sin. Now, this is something different. To put an end to sin. We actually find that language in Hebrews chapter 9. That Jesus put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. This is to do away with it. Now it's interesting that the, the verb translated to put, put an end to sin is actually the same word that's going to be used later to seal both the vision and the prophet. It also can be translated to seal up the sin, which kind of is the same idea. When you want to seal something, you intend it to be concealed, hidden from view, put behind us. It's interesting, Job uses this. He says, my transgression would be sealed up, same verb, in a bag, and you would cover over my iniquity. So that's another, another way to look at it. Remember, the Hebrew language is very colorful. <laughs> and many of the Hebrew words, they have beautiful meanings and variations. So I want to bring these out uh, the best I can from my, the tools that I have to work with. So put an end to sin, to seal up sin, put it in a bag, drop it into the depths of the ocean, like Micah says, 
God is going to cast all our sins behind his back. He's going to cast them into the depths of the sea. Micah 7, 19. So just, uh, there's a great image for you. God puts, to put it into sin, he puts our sin into a bag. Seals it up. Drops it in the depths of the Mediterranean Sea. Because that was the sea to the ancient world in Palestine at that time. And in Babylon. So... To restrain sin, put an end to sin. Now notice number three. He's not done yet. And to atone for iniquity. Now when we think of the death of Christ, this is one of the key words that we connect with Jesus. That his death was an atonement. Now this Old Testament word is an interesting word and it's not so easily defined. It's complex. There's many facets to it. But the basic meaning means to cover, to shelter. And it's not just that God covers our sin. He actually shelters us from what? From his wrath when atonement is made. This word is also translated in the Old Testament by the idea of his purging away sin. It has that idea. It's not every time is the Hebrew word translated atonement. It's translated about 80 times atonement. Most of those times are in the book of Leviticus. About 50 times in Leviticus alone, it's atonement. But what is the atonement? The atonement has to do with a bloody sacrifice that is made in order to expunge the guilt of the worshiper or to deliver them from the liability to punishment. Both, essentially. And this is not done by the worshiper. This can only be done by the priest. He's the one that makes the atonement. He takes the sacrifice, takes the blood of the sacrifice, he sprinkles it on the altar of God and makes atonement for the worshiper. So we don't make atonement for ourselves. This has to be done by the priest, the mediator between Yahweh and the sinner. So what is the truth about in the New Testament for us? The Lord Jesus Christ is both priest and sacrifice. It's interesting. He's both. He's not one or the other. His priesthood is after the order of Melchizedek, we're told in the book of Hebrews, not after the order of Aaron, because he has an eternal priesthood. And Melchizedek had a priesthood forever, it would appear. Not dying, no record of his death, Seemingly living forever, he makes a beautiful picture for an eternal priesthood. And the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who makes the offering. And what is the offering that he makes? It's himself. It's himself. He's the sacrifice. It's his blood that makes an atonement for us. So when the atonement is made... God and man can come together. There's reconciliation. 
we enter into God's favor and acceptance as a result of the atonement. So you can see how this is building. To restrain sin, to put away sin, and to make an atonement for iniquity, that is, on account of iniquity. So in other words, the big problem that Daniel was praying about earlier in this chapter, about the sin of his people and his own sin, this is the big issue, this is the problem. Now Gabriel comes with a special revelation how this sin, this transgression, this iniquity is going to be dealt with. And it's going to be dealt with thoroughly and completely in history. In this 490-year period. Now, number four. See, here's the other side. When we went through the book of Romans, we spent time looking at justification by faith, didn't we? Paul told us in the first chapter of Romans that the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. And that righteousness was not God's attribute of righteousness. It's the provision of righteousness, the gift of righteousness, he tells us in chapter 5. And that righteousness came about as the, from the finished work of the Son. He provided a righteousness because man is unrighteous. He's a lawbreaker. And his number one need is for righteousness in order to be accepted before God, in order to come into God's presence and have God's smile and favor for all eternity. He must be righteous. I'm not righteous in myself. Where's this righteousness going to come from? It comes through the good news, announcing that Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, has performed a work that meets all of God's requirements. And if you think of righteousness as a clothing, as a garment, he takes, he removes our old garment, which is dirty, which represents our sin. God takes that off of us. He removes the, the garment of sin. And then he puts a beautiful garment that's perfect in the place of it. Righteousness. So Gabriel tells Daniel in this revelation that also during this 490 year period, he's going to bring in everlasting righteousness. This is an amazing thing that's told to us here. Here's the announcement of this coming righteousness of God. Notice it's everlasting. How long did Adam have his righteousness? When God created Adam, he made him perfect. He had a righteousness. But he was not fixed in that righteousness. He could fall. He could sin. And when he was tested by the tree in the garden, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, the knowledge of good and evil. In the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. Dying you shall die. And Adam failed. His wife failed. In that moment, they were filled with shame. They became unrighteous before God. Adam lost his righteousness very soon after his creation. Some theologians think it happened the same day he was created. 
It didn't last long. Even if it would have lasted for a thousand years and then he eventually fell, it still wasn't enough. It was a temporary righteousness. But notice this one. This one's everlasting. That's exactly what we want. We want one that's going to keep us safe for all eternity. In other words, when you're justified, when you become a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and you are trusting him for your salvation, you are given that righteousness and that righteousness lasts forever. There's no possibility that you can fall out of that state of justification, of being justified. It's a permanent position. It's everlasting. The righteousness of God. Isaiah announced in the 51st chapter and verse 8 of Isaiah, My righteousness will be forever my salvation to all generations. This is why Paul said when he's arguing for this revelation of God's righteousness in the gospel, he says it was according to the law and the prophets. In other words, it's found in the Old Testament. And Isaiah 51.8 is a good Old Testament text. It talks about, notice he connected my righteousness with salvation. This is not the divine attribute of righteousness. This is the gift of righteousness that is given to the sinner when he becomes a believer. And that is the basis for our being saved, being redeemed, being delivered from the wrath to come. Number five, to seal both vision and profit. Now, a seal, in when it's being applied in this sense to vision and profit, is talking about Old Testament revelation. Think of a scroll. Well, we have a perfect example in Revelation chapter 5 of the scroll that no man was worthy to open up. But finally, the Lamb of God, he was found worthy to open the seals one by one and open the scroll. That's the scroll of God's purpose for the earth. And those seals were peeled off one at a time of what was coming, what is coming. I believe it's future is my view of that. What is coming to the earth one seal at a time. But the point is, it was a scroll and it was sealed. This is the idea. So, something that was sealed in the Old Testament, a document or a scroll, if you put a seal on it, it could be a wax seal, it could be a signature, some, something like that that's sealed. You were authenticating it with your signature. You were ratifying it, the contents of it, So what is the meaning of that when you apply it to Old Testament revelation? The vision and the prophecy, namely Jeremiah's prophecy, Daniel's vision, the previous vision he had in chapter 8, and the previous visions, visions, as well as this current prophecy of the 77s, what is being so told to us. Well, it's being God is authenticating it, meaning it's going to be accomplished. This is the 
assurance that Daniel is given by Gabriel that these things will be fulfilled. What God has promised will come to pass to seal up the vision and the prophecy or the prophet. This is why Peter, in his second letter, he talks about the, you know, he didn't bring it up until much later. Jesus told them not to talk about it, what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration. They weren't to tell anybody. Peter, James, and John had that experience on the mountain of hearing the voice of the Father, seeing Jesus transfigured with his face glowing like the sun. This was a preview of his coming glory. And Jesus said, don't tell anybody about it. But Peter talked about it in his second letter. First chapter, he talks about it, that we saw this. But after going from a vision that he had, he says, in contrast, but we have a more sure word of prophecy. And he talks about the word of God. We're on safer ground with scripture than with somebody's vision. I mean, everybody's brother talks about, I, I, I had a vision. And they talk about what they saw. You don't know if it's true or not. Can't put a lot of stock in what people say they saw in a vision. But this, this we can rest on. This is our foundation, the word of God. A more sure word of prophecy, Peter says. For holy men of old spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit, he goes on to say. Referring to the Old Testament. They viewed it very much as the word of God, the inspired word of God, what they had access to. Now, finally, number six. Yeah, there's a lot here, in there. Notice the, the final thing. And to anoint a most holy place. Literally, this could be translated, this is from E.J. Young, to anoint the holiness of holinesses, is how he put it, or a most holy thing. It's ambiguous. The language in the original is ambiguous. We are not sure what the most holy is referring to. Now our translation says place. So we're thinking, well, the temple. That's where the most holy place was. But that's not how the original reads. It leaves it open-ended. So it's, we're not quite sure who, is, who or what is the most holy. But it's to be anointed. But let's take the idea of anoint. This is something that was practiced in ancient Israel. Anointing is to take oil and to pour it or to smear it. And they did this with the offices of the priest and king, particularly. Now, there is one example of a prophet being anointed, but only one. It's when Elijah anointed Elisha. So we usually say the prophet, priest, and king were anointed. 
but only one example of the prophet being anointed to his office. But many of the priests and the king, they were anointed. And this anointing was a ceremony that was indicative of the fact that this person is being set apart, he's being consecrated to God's service. If it's an object, it's something that's being set apart for sacred use. Like they anointed the furniture in the tabernacle. Because it was going to be used in the worship of God. So they were setting it aside. They were marking it out. Showing in this ritual that this was something sacred. So here's, here's the possibilities here. So it could be referring to the most holy place in the temple. So let's begin there. So remember, the temple in Daniel's day was still in shambles because Nebuchadnezzar overthrew it. He destroyed the temple. The temple's going to be rebuilt in history later by the exiles. The post-exilic period after they returned to their land. They want to rebuild the temple. Well, after it's rebuilt, they're going to probably rededicate it, anoint it, and so on. So it could refer to the fact that their temple will be reconstructed, rebuilt, and there'll be an anointing ceremony for the most holy, and we can add, place as our translation. So the translators in my Bible are actually given their own thought here as to what it is. They're giving their view, the translator. He thinks it's referring to the place, the most holy place. But we don't know. Language is ambiguous. It could pertain to the Messiah. The anointing, because he's going to be called in the next verse, an anointed one. Not the anointed one. It's a, there's no definite article. It's an anointed one. The prince. This is his title in this part of the revelation. It could refer to him. Now, the anointing actually was symbolic of something, wasn't it? Yes, it's symbolic of the person's consecration to the office, king or priesthood or prophet being set apart, but the anointing with oil also is symbolic of the fact that this person needs the gift of the Spirit in order to execute this office that they're going to have. They need the gifts, they need the equipment to carry out their office as priest. And so it's, it's associated with the Spirit of God being anointed by the Holy Spirit. We've used that language today. If we hear a great sermon, we might say, man, he was really anointed with the Spirit this morning. So was the Lord Jesus Christ anointed? Well, let's think about it for a minute. Was he the most holy? Think of the language now that's used. Mary was told by Gabriel when she said, how, how can it be? I have not, I don't, I've never known a man. How am I going to have a baby? Gabriel told her, you're going to be overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. 
And that holy thing, this is the language actually in the Greek, this is how it reads, that holy thing that shall be born of you will be called the Son of God. That holy thing, interesting language. The Lord Jesus Christ is said to be holy or the Holy One 12 times in the New Testament. Now, when he was anointed to his earthly ministry, it occurred at his baptism. That was the launching of his public ministry. That doesn't mean he didn't have the Holy Spirit before when he was growing up. But something happened at Jesus' baptism that was different. When he came to be baptized of John the Baptist, John said, No, I... I, I need to be baptized by you. Jesus said, allow it to be so like this for now. For it's necessary for us to fulfill all righteousness. Part of that righteousness that Jesus provided for us involved even his being obedient to baptism. And he was in the water and the heavens opened. God spoke, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, but also the spirit of God came down upon him in the form of a dove. And the text says in Matthew 3, it rested upon him. It rested. The Holy Spirit rested upon him. So later when Jesus came into his own synagogue in the village of Nazareth, And he stood up to read the scroll of Isaiah 61. He read, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor and so on. And then he went on to say to the congregation, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. He was anointed by the Spirit for his ministry. John the Baptist said that the Spirit was given to him without measure, John 3.34. In in Hebrews 1, it says, He was anointed with the oil of gladness above all his fellows. I take that to mean that he had more of the Spirit than anyone else. And especially it was the Spirit of gladness. He had joy in his work as he went about as our mediator. The work of salvation. So no wonder the Lord Jesus Christ said this amazing statement in Matthew 12, 6. I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Something greater than the temple is here. He was standing in the temple complex. So this anointing of the most holy could clearly refer to the Messiah as well. But let's take it even a step beyond that. It could pertain to the church. Because the church also is the new temple of God. God doesn't dwell in physical temples anymore. He told the woman at the well when she wanted to discuss, well, where's the proper place to worship? We say it's here in Mount Gerizim. You say it's down there in Jerusalem, speaking to Jesus. She's a Samaritan. 
And he said, the hour is coming when neither in this place or in that place, the true worshipers will worship the Father. The time is coming when place doesn't matter. God is not going to dwell in temples made with hands anymore. He now has taken up residence in the new temple, the church. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians that you are the temple of God, most holy to the Lord. Because the Spirit of God indwells us. He has taken up residence in his people, the church. And by church, I don't mean the building. We're talking about the people. The people that compose a congregation are the new temple of God, the new house of the Lord. His new dwelling place. Are they anointed? Are we given the Spirit? Well, yeah. Listen to John's language in 1 John 2. He says, The anointing you have received from Him abides in you. Who's he talking about? He's talking about the Holy Spirit. But he calls Him the anointing. And then he goes on, same verse, 1 John 2.27 This anointing is your teacher. So you don't need any man to teach you. The the Spirit who has anointed you. The Spirit of God is your instructor. So this is is a, a beautiful beginning to Daniel's 70 weeks. Now we'll come next time, Lord willing, to the coming when here's the question what is the starting point of the 490 years this is where there's differences of opinion the starting point if we can figure out what the starting point is then we can look into the future and see when jesus is supposed to come into the world And it's going to all fall out very beautifully, as I hope to show, Lord willing. Amen. Thank you for joining us and listening to this message from the Ministry of Grace Providence Church in Cerritos, California. For more information, visit our website at www.graceprovidencechurch.org.